0: An agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix
1: Bennell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, we head back to class aboard the nearly forgotten school bus designed and built in the northwest.
0: Kenworth built the chassis over in Seattle and then they drove them over to the Pacific Car and Foundry Shops in Renton and then they put the bodies on them.
1: And then, from the archives, the days when people used to dig up old cannonballs in downtown Seattle. But first, let's go all over the map.
0: In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. An evergreen playground blessed by an unusual variety of natural... Our resident
2: historian Felix Bennell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. It's a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. This week, it may not have the cachet of Route 66, route if you will, but (laughs) an eastern Washington man is leading the charge to raise the profile of historic U.S. route or Route 10 all across the state. Felix.
1: Hey, it's route. Come on, cut that out. No, um, so <laughs> It's US Route 66, Route 10. <laughs> there you go.
2: Only 66
1: can be It's route. Yeah, it's very complicated. Um, U.S. Route 10 is the old name for the federal highway that first crossed much of, northern, much of the northern United States, um, connecting Seattle to Detroit beginning around the late 1920s. This road was also known as a sunset highway. And whatever people called it, much of it was wiped out or built over the top of to create the Interstate 90 freeway in the 60s and 70s. But it turns out there are still some great stretches, in some places as much as 40 miles long, where the old two-lane highway still exists in the Evergreen State. And in some cases, the old highway is what goes through the middle of a cool old rural town. You know, when they built I-90, they, they straightened out the route a little bit, and they bypassed many of the small towns where U.S. 10 was once the main street. Now, there's a civic leader over in Ritzville named John Rankin. He runs a sign company, and he restored and operates the old Ritz Theater. And he's also president of the Ritzville Downtown Development Association. So with some inspiration from time spent around Route 66 in the southwest, he's been leading an effort since 2012 to draw attention to those old stretches of Highway 10 and to those little towns like Ritzville or my personal favorite, Sprague, that are still charming, that still could use your business if you need gas or a sandwich or maybe a used book or an (laughs) antique. Now, this is how John Rankin sums it up.
0: Basically, our thing is just to get more tourists off the freeway as opposed to just going to the Starbucks and McDonald's by the freeway, but to, you know, venture off a mile or so off the freeway and drive through these old towns and hopefully provide some sort of economic boost.
1: So the main focus of Rankin's efforts so far is signage along the freeway and along the old stretches of Highway 10. Now, the state legislature devoted $50,000 to the project a few years ago, and now there are small signs at several exits along I-90, mainly in that long stretch between Moses Lake and Spokane that seems to go on for about 10,000 miles if you're trying (laughs) to get to one side of the state. Yes. Now, these signs are brown, and they have the old U.S. Highway logo, and they say Historic Washington U.S. Route 10. So, and I didn't really know this. I'd driven by these signs a few times in the last year. When you're on i-90 and if you see one of those signs it means you can exit the freeway and then follow part of old us-10 for some distance and then easily get back on the freeway so if you take i-90 if you get off i-90 and take old highway 10 through ritzville for instance there are some very nice and much larger vintage style highway 10 signs along the old two-lane road these local signs are up to the individual jurisdictions to create and install and they help the unfamiliar drivers know they're on the right path now you could do this here and there along almost all of i-90 from idaho to seattle you know, there's old stretches in Spokane, in North Bend, in Snoqualmie, in Issaquah, even on Mercer Island. Um, one thing, though, there's currently no really good brochure or map showing all the stretches of Phantom Highway 10. And it really cries out for an app or maybe marking it out some way on Google Maps or Apple Maps. So you can just go to your phone and select, you know, drive the old highway and then get the turn-by-turn navigation instructions. But, you know, that, there's plenty of time for that. But Just really want to call out John Rankin and his efforts. What a cool idea and great follow-through to make it happen and bring economic development to places like Ritzville and Sprague and just make the drive to Spokane more interesting or the drive to Seattle if you're coming the other direction.
2: Right. Yeah, I suppose I have never. I always stop in Ritzville. It's 45 minutes left until you get to Spokane. It's sort of the pit stop before you get to Spokane. But, you know, just in my time as a reporter in Spokane, we pass through a lot of those small towns like Sprague, and they are so charming. But unless you're intentional about getting off the road and doing that, you wouldn't know to. So good for him.
1: Yeah, What I like about Sprig is from the highway, from the freeway, it looks like a little model railroad layout with like yeah. a little feed you know, feed mill and the railroad yeah. tracks. When you drive into town, there's all these great old brick buildings. There's a big lot filled with old trucks. It's yeah. just definitely worth getting off the highway. There's so much to see and do around the state.
2: Absolutely. OMAC 2, great wineries up there. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yep. central Washington is largely unexplored by tourists. You go from Seattle to Spokane and back. Uh, yep. But good for that. I'm, I'm glad you're pointing this out, Felix. Thank you.
0: You, as a school bus passenger, must learn and obey safety rules in order to protect yourself and others from injury. Keep your arms and legs out of the aisle so that others may move quickly and safely to their seats. Keep your arms and body inside of the bus. So that you won't be injured by other vehicles or branches of trees passing close to the bus <laughs> oh, windows. Oh, the
2: civilized years of riding the school bus. Can you imagine telling kids to do that these days? In a normal year, many kids headed back to school this week would be getting there in a big yellow school bus. And that was all the excuse our resident historian, Felix Bennell, needed to try and raise the profile of a local brand of school bus that was designed and built right here in the Northwest back in the 1950s. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Felix, this is delightful.
1: Oh, yeah, thank you. School buses have been around about 100 years, right? They really took off after World War II with the baby boom and the move by millions of families to those new and growing suburbs, along with that general rise of car culture, you know, the shopping malls and drive-in theaters of those Eisenhower and Kennedy eras. Now, I would guess many people listening right now have memories of riding the school bus in communities all around Puget Sound but they probably didn't care what company their bus was made by. I think it's worth noting, though, that a local manufacturer, Pacific Car and Foundry, or PACAR, in their Kenworth division, made a popular school bus here from 1949 to 1957. Many were still in service as late as maybe even the 1980s. Now, I never rode in one myself, but I used to see them from my school bus, and I was jealous. I was a weird little kid. I also listened to Cairo on a transistor radio I carried with me to the <laughs> bus stop. So. I'm not making that up. Um, Little this Felix made...
2: listening to news radio. That's <laughs> yeah, Bill so Yen. cute. Oh my gosh, I love that.
1: Um, so the locally made school bus, it's called a Kenworth Pacific Model T, or just a Pacific. They look like any other flat front school bus, but they do have a feature that gives them a different appearance than pretty much any other bus you run into out on the streets. That feature is a second set of two fairly large windows below the front windshield. I tweeted out some pictures uh, at Felix Bennell on the t- Twitter feed this morning, if you want to see those right now. Now, nerdy little me, 40 years ago, isn't the only one who noticed those extra windows on the Pacific school bus. Tom Schaefer is vice president of a bus museum down in Fremont, California.
0: I think the uh, the windows underneath were really a safety feature. Uh, you had a flat front, uh, transit-style construction, and that gave a little extra visibility uh, for kids crossing the street. And that that really made that really made the Kenworth stand out from the crowd.
1: You know, I saw some old Pacific School Bus sales materials this week. It said those extra windows let you see the roadway as close as 30 inches ahead of the front Mm -hmm. bumper rather than 20 feet with a traditional bus design where the engine sticks out in front. That's really important when your passengers are little kids, of course. Now, I also learned from the sales materials that the official name for those two sections of glass is safety vision windshields. But I like better what Jeff Howard of Redmond calls them. He calls them bifocals, which is just, it's like poetry. Jeff has worked around school buses for much of the past 70 years. He's something of an expert. His dad was Sherman Howard, and Sherman Howard came to Seattle from Lansing, Michigan during the war to work for Boeing. He then got a job with Packard in their Kenworth division and came up with the initial design of a transit bus that morphed into the Pacific school bus. Now, Sherman Howard left Packard in 1949 and became salesman for Crown, which is one of Packard's competitors from California. So he sold school buses all over Washington and Oregon. And he passed away back in 1993 in his 80s. Now, Jeff Howard grew up in the family school bus business, which his dad ran from the family home just south of Mirriamore Park. Jeff says part of that place was called the bus farm.
0: There was probably uh, a quarter of an acre that uh, my dad had gravel. And so anytime he had a new bus coming in or um, sometimes three or four of them at a time that were on their way to being delivered to a school district somewhere in Washington... Um uh, we had half a dozen buses here, sometimes some old clunker pre-war trade-ins and stuff like that. So I, I had a chance to run these old jalopies and the new ones and all that kind of stuff. And I just had a wonderful time when I was a 16-year-old kid with a driver's license because he, he put me on a DC-3 of West Coast Airlines and send me to Wenatchee to bring an old Mac back here or something. You know, I've, I just enjoyed that very much.
1: Yeah, I mean, the school buses are in Jeff Howard's blood. Now, as far as I know, the Pacific school bus isn't in some Northwest Transportation Hall of Fame with the, you know, the Boeing 707 or the Monorail or the Kalakala even, but I think it ought to be. One reason is something that Jeff Howard told me. He says school buses were built differently on the West Coast by three main manufacturers. He had Kenworth here and Crown and Gilligan, California, than anywhere else in the U.S. First off, they were flat front like those city transit buses, so they didn't have that long snout ahead of the driver, and they were built tough.
0: When you get a uh, transit-type bus like a uh, Crown or a Gillig or a Kenworth, um, outriggers for that body are welded to the frame. And the cross members are welded to the frame. And it becomes a unit construction, basically, built from the ground up. They start with two frame rails on some stands, and then they build the bus body on it. And it's one piece. Well, with those um, East Coast buses, they can get into a nasty wreck, and that body can actually shift on that chassis and, and crush up toward the front or the back or the side or shift off to the side, whatever, with a, with a large impact. And with a bus that's put together all in one piece, they don't do that. They're much safer in an in a impact collision.
1: So, you know, West Coast buses are safer, and the climate here means it makes sense to build them to last longer? Because of the salt used on icy roads in the Midwest and the, on the East Coast, buses built for those markets were almost disposable. You might get 10 years out of one before it rusted out. On the West Coast, though, with basic maintenance, you might easily get 30 years out of a Pacific or a Gillig or a Crown. Sherman Howard, says his son Jeff, had a pejorative description for those East Coast buses.
0: My dad called them a uh, um, hay truck with a bus body is what he called them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love that there's such <laughs> passion even in school buses, I where know, they're like he, throwing insults <laughs> at each other. <laughs>
1: Scratch below the surface of any topic, you can find this, yeah. Now, Kenworth and Packard got out of the school bus business back in 1957. They sold off to the competitor Gillig in California. Gillig was more than happy to eliminate the competition. So there's only about eight years of production for the Pacific bus. I checked with Packard earlier this week, and they don't even have production numbers. Maybe they built several hundred, maybe less than a thousand. You know, one more thing. I assume that Pacific buses were made at the Packard plant in Renton, but I was only half right. Jeff Howard says the work was actually done in two places, which required a certain creative transportation solution.
0: Kenworth built the chassis over in Seattle, and then they strapped a couple of oak, uh, big heavy-duty oak uh, beams to them with U-bolts, and then they drove them over to the Pacific Car and Foundry shops in Renton, and then they put the bodies on them. They built them up, and I'm sure they must have done something to make it, you know, must have put some taillights on it and and stuff like that, Maybe put a little fake windshield up. There's no f- pictures I've ever seen. It's just my d- dad described how they did it.
1: I like the idea of these Kenworth guys driving these naked buses, like a, f- a frame essentially from uh, <laughs> Seattle over to Rendon. Now, there aren't too many Pacific buses left. There's one parked at the Triple X in Issaquah. You know, that drive-in there? It's uh, meant to look like the Buddy Holly bus, but it's a fake. There's one rusting away in eastern Washington. It shows up on Instagram on other photo-sharing sites. It's almost like it's a, it's a cult attraction over there along the Columbia River. And there's <laughs> some other restored ones here and there. And Anyway, it's sort of a forgotten part of the past, but it's, I think it belongs there with the Calacala and the 707 and the monorail in that Northwest Transportation Hall of Fame.
0: For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity.
1: For this edition of From the Archives, the explosive history of relics from the 1856
0: Battle of Seattle. to the bunkers. Huh. That uh, old Navy mine that bobbed to the service of Puget Sound last week was not the first time the discovery of military relics caused a stir around here. Historian Felix Bunnell is here to remind us all about that, brought to us by the King County Library System.
1: Yeah, that was really like a social experiment last week to see just the quick and intense reaction to that. It reminded me a little bit of those Ivers uh, billboard hoax a while back. Remember yes, that's right. They raised the billboard. I-, I was right there speculating along with everybody else, of course. Um But it made me think about some other incidents around here, and I was remembering about 10, 15 years ago when I was still working at Mohai, reading about the 1850s Indian War and the Battle of Seattle of January 1856. And I looked around the archives and spoke with some curators, and it turns out that several rusty old cannonballs were unearthed in downtown Seattle over the years from the 1860s to the 1920s. Now, the most likely source is the U.S. Navy sloop of war, USS Decatur, which spent most of a day 162 years ago firing its carronades on Seattle. I'd never heard this term before. Carronade, it's like a stubby cannon. Mm-hmm. Shorter barrel makes it easier to load and clean on board a ship. It's like a sawed off shotgun, as one yeah. historian described to me. So, quick refresher about the Indian War from 1855 and 1856 um, it was a culmination of months of tension over problems with the treaties that our territorial governor, Isaac Stevens, had negotiated. Settlers were arriving, displacing Native Americans, and there was all this, all this tension built up. And the sloop of war Decatur had come to town in the fall of 1855 to protect the settlers and to be there in case something bad yes. happened. There had been a few killings out in White River Valley, and everyone was gathered in the blockhouses and on this morning of January 26, 1856. Sure enough, natives were spotted around the outside of the city, and they figured the attack was going to begin. So the Decatur fired pretty much all day. It had eight ca- um, carronades on each side of its uh, hull. And so it fired them as quickly as it could from the early morning of the 26th until 10 o'clock that night. So they unloaded a lot of material on the city. When it was over, two Americans had died from sniper attacks from the natives. And it's unclear how many natives died, and they never really were able to get an accurate mm. count. But they fired so much stuff that it wasn't any big deal to see this stuff lying all over the city in the 1850s and 1860s. So no now, were
0: these are just inert uh, iron cannonballs? A, or it was or a they...
1: mixture. These are the 32-pound cannonballs, 32-pounders, which are about 6 inches in diameter and very yeah. dense. And then something called um, grape shot, which is like uh, shotgun sh- material, bits of artillery, uh, bits of um, shrapnel. But these are not exploding shells. They had exploding shells they fired from a howitzer, which they, they sent a detachment of Marines ashore firing They had the a howitzer. howitzer here, too? They had a howitzer, yeah. And they, those fired some shells. And there's one one eyewitness account of a howitzer shell kind of reaching the end of its range and a group of natives kind of catching the shell in a blanket, joining hands and dancing around it. And then it exploded about 10 seconds oh later and killed 10. I mean, this was... This is brutal mechanized warfare right here in Seattle, five years before the Civil War. It's really that the brutality of it is really sort of easy to kind of miss in thinking about these artifacts and the kind of the over-romanticized Battle of Seattle. But um, so it's... It was no big deal in the 60s, 70s, 80s. But then about 1890, you start to see newspaper accounts of these things turning up at construction sites. Right. Seattle's becoming urban. People have sort of not forgotten about the battle, but they're looking – all this progress is happening. So I went back through the records, and I found three or four instances where different balls were found and, and tried to track down where they ended up. Uh, where did they end up? Well, I mean, the, there's, Mohai has five of them, four that have pretty good provenance, one that has kind of a, a mixed provenance. But the earliest documented discovery I could find was August of 1890, the corner of 2nd and Cherry. They were digging what became the Seafirst Bank, the Dexter Horton Building. This was uh, about, a, they described it as a 12-pound cannonball. I think it's actually a, 20, a 32-pounder that's now in the Mohai collection, because a Seafirst executive donated it to the museum about 50 years ago. It's, it's kind of sketchy, right? Um, there's also one in uh, 1891. A guy named Gilbert W. Hapgood was digging at the corner of Seventh and Seneca, digging a post hole. This is now where the freeway is, and he found um, a, a relatively small, like a four-inch diameter ball, which is what they described as attached to chain shot. Have you ever heard of chain shot? No. This is two cannon balls attached by a long piece of chain that's fired out of the oh. cannon, and it, the balls go in a different directions. They take the chain with it. It's designed to take off the mast of a sailing ship but it's also like a you know an anti-personnel mine yeah. it takes down anything in its way and they fired a lot of that during the battle as well this one's unclear where it ended up because hapgood but hapgood was able to get henry yesler you know, the uh wizened old settler that time the guy who started yesler's mill he came and said there was no doubt it was uh, left over from the, the Decatur. and it said that hapgood intended to preserve it and put it in an antique oak, oak case and send it to the world's fair as a relic of seattle's pioneer dangers not sure where that one ended up but i I'd lo- I don't know if i don't know if he ever actually followed through on his promise then in um, September 1905, they found one of these 32 pounders. This is one of the big ones it, on Main Street between Third and Fourth. When they were digging the Great Northern Tunnel that we talked about a month or so yeah. ago, this was really close to where a, a blockhouse was located, where a lot of the settlers had um, gone to, and during the battle, to you know, like I built a blockhouse to protect them from the from attack. Now this one was authenticated by another great local historian, Edmund Meany, and it went. It said in the newspaper it went to the State University or the museum at the State University. Turns out I tracked it down. And I went to the Burke and the Burke gave it to Mohai about 35 years ago and that's um, it's still in the collection.
0: Well, I'm surprised when they were digging Bertha that didn't found they didn't find yeah, the ordnance. Yeah,
1: too deep I think is a huh. problem. Um, one of my favorite ones, they found one on Beacon Hill in 1920 and they got Clarence Bagley to identify it. And he you know, he was another great local historian. He also said that Dexter Horton had found a similar one uh, back in the 1860s and put it near the on the ground near a fire and it exploded. What? Dexter Horton wasn't hurt, but he was showered with limbs and dirt, according to Bagley. But this is my favorite quote. from. I want to read this quote from Bagley. He said, in 1865, I was chopping wood near 2nd Avenue in Madison Street when the bit of my axe struck a cannonball similar to the one found the other day, which had been buried in a log. I found a number after that and used them for dumbbells. So you have <laughs> Clarence Bagley kind of working out, like getting his you know, six-packs in shape, lifting up old Decatur
0: cannonballs. Uh, so you think this stuff is still lurking somewhere under the uh, soil?
1: That's the first thought, right? Um, I'm sure there must be. There's such a huge quantity of it. A lot of it went straight into the ground and only was dug up by happenstance, right? Yeah. But everything now is under concrete, right? There's I can't think of any very little dirt in downtown. So soil. the safe. lawn of I'd go to the lawn of the Rainier Club probably and start digging because there's still <laughs> grass. That's the only piece of grass I know of right. near the southern part of downtown where the Decatur was actually moored offshore. Right. Thank you, Felix. You, I'm Felix Bennell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at mynorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian.